12th of May 1976, just seven weeks after his shock resignation as Prime Minister, Harold Wilson invited Barry Penrose and Roger Courtier, two journalists who had been following the Thorpe story, to his home in Lord North Street. There, he told them to expose a plot by the South African government and its security agency, aided by so-called right-wing elements in MI5, to discredit Thorpe, and that also there had been a conspiracy to discredit him by the same parties. In fact, a week before he resigned, Wilson said in the House of Commons that he was certain that there was strong South African participation in recent activities relating to the leader of the Liberal Party. Penrose and Courtier's investigations ultimately revealed that not only was Wilson's suspicions about South African involvement utterly without foundation, but led them straight to the plot to have Scott murdered, and their book, The Pencourt File, based on their dealings with Wilson and Castle. As another document I found in the National Archives reveals, the journalist wrote to Barbara Castle saying, We have strong reason to know that some of the politicians we refer to behaved in the manner they did because they were acting on a wholly mistaken premise, namely that Mr Scott was a common black mayor, liar and possibly a foreign agent working for South Africa. Now that Mr Scott's allegations are seen to have foundation, as we show in our book, they must obviously put the behaviour of some of those politicians in an altogether different light. Paul Foote, then freelancing for Private Eye, also investigated the claims about the involvement of the South African security services and just like Penrose and Courtier, he found them to not only be nonsense but what really lay behind the cover-ups and rumours. Furthermore, he discovered that the police officer in charge of the Newton case not only believed that Thorpe was involved but that despite a huge amount of evidence found the DPP's reluctance to charge Thorpe with any offences frustrating. But that frustration was about to come to an end. In 1977, after being released from a two-year jail sentence, Andrew Newton sold his changed story to the London Evening News, headlined, I was hired to kill Scott. He claimed he had received a £5,000 down payment on a contract to murder Norman Scott from David Holmes. And his claims are backed up by recordings of a phone conversation with Holmes. In October 1977, the Daily Express ran a story by its veteran journalist Chapman Pincher, which concluded... I am left in no doubt that, while Mr Scott is wild and emotionally unstable, he is a credible witness, while some of Mr Thorpe's counter-allegations have proved to be misleading, to say the least. And, like the Watergate case four years earlier, which had brought down an American president, no less, this was another situation where, as FBI source Mark Felt had told Woodward and Bernstein, all you needed to do was... Follow the money. Within weeks, Paul Foote's investigations and those of Penrose and Courtier were vindicated. On the 4th of August 1978, Thorpe and his three co-defendants were formally charged at Minehead Police Station with conspiracy to murder Norman Scott 
Thorpe was also charged with incitement to murder. Later, it emerged that the prosecution considered also charging Thorpe with fraud due to the missing £20,000, but decided it would just have confused the jury. As it transpired, it wouldn't take much to confuse this particular jury. And yet still Thorpe's lies continued. He'd promised his new party leader, David Steele, that he would resign his parliamentary seat if Scott's allegations were made public, which they had been. But of course, he didn't resign. He'd also promised Steele that he would not attend the Liberal Party conference that autumn. The party's president, Lord Evans, wrote to Thorpe, saying, I have become reluctantly but firmly convinced that the wisest course would be if you gave the Assembly a miss. And not only did he not give it a miss, but he failed to keep a low profile, to put it mildly. Mr Thorpe takes the limelight at Southport was the front page headline of the Times the day after Thorpe made his way onto the platform, just moments after the Assembly had proved the theme of the party's general election strategy, break with the past. Steele instructed the party president to investigate what had happened to Jack Haywood's donations, but not Thorpe's stint as party treasurer and leader. This so-called investigation was swift and inconclusive to avoid plunging the party further into the mire. Steele would later tell Jack Haywood, he deceived us all. Welcome to the Jeremy Thorpe's Deception Club, Mr. Steele. After the arrests came the committal proceedings, which started on November the 20th, 1978, and the lies, smears and obfuscations continued apace. Thorpe solicitor Sir David Napley even went so far as to suggest that Peter Bessel, Barry Penrose and Roger Courtior had fabricated the entire story to make money out of their respective books. The trial of Thorpe and his three co-defendants was set to start at the Old Bailey on May 8, 1979, five days after the general election, in which one of the candidates would be Jeremy Thorpe. At some point, some leading Liberal Party figures conspired to make things even worse for themselves. A piece in The Guardian alleged that they had approached Number 10 to try and get the Thorpe case delayed. Archives reveals that on March 20th, 1979, Bernard Donoghue, then head of the government's policy research unit, wrote to Prime Minister James Callaghan, stating that in 1978 and in 1979 respectively, he had been sounded out by Archie Kirkwood, David Steele's special advisor, and then Steele himself, telling him it would help them if the Thorpe trial took place a long time after the election. I was non-committal in response. The trial actually began on the date scheduled, and much to the fury of Thorpe and his defence team, George Deakin's lawyer successfully had reporting restrictions about the trial lifted. The lead prosecutor, Peter Taylor QC, was aiming to prove beyond any reasonable doubt that A. There had been a sexual relationship between Scott and Thorpe. B. Thorpe's aim of keeping Scott quiet. C. 
that Thorpe incited his best friend David Holmes to have Scott killed, and D, there had been a conspiracy involving the four accused to have Scott murdered. In point of fact, in his summing up, Taylor was able to cite 66 facts of the case which the defence was unable to dispute. But that came too late for this particular jury. And at times, it seemed as though Taylor's sympathy lay with the main defendant. In his summing up, he said the case was a tragedy of truly Greek proportions, and that what happened to Thorpe was the slow but inevitable destruction of a man by the stamp of one defect. (gasps) Not surprisingly, the gay community took great exception to this, and a number of members of the Brixton gay community picketed outside the Old Bailey, holding placards which said, Homosexuality is not a defect. Unfortunately, the prosecution's three main witnesses, Bessel, Newton and Scott, were no match for the merciless skill of Thorpe's wily defence lawyer, George Carman QC. As each appeared in the witness stand, he proceeded to take them and their evidence apart like a piranha stripping the flesh off its prey. It was brutal, it was bloody, and from a purely judicial viewpoint, it was brilliant. However, when Carmen cross-examined Scott, on several occasions he stated that Mr Thorpe had homosexual tendencies, thus rather undermining the defence argument that there could not have been a sexual relationship between Scott and Thorpe because in no way was Thorpe gay. And then came Thorpe's final betrayal. Without a word of warning to his fellow defendants, he instructed Carmen to tell the jury they should consider that the conspiracy had actually happened, but without Thorpe's knowledge. And of course their cause was aided and abetted by presiding Justice Joseph Cantley, whose biased interventions and summing up inspired one of the greatest comedy sketches ever created, Entirely a Matter for You, written and performed by Peter Cook. You can find it on YouTube. Cook didn't have to do much to satirise most of Cantley's real jaw-dropping statements, which included, When I say you must look at Bessel's evidence with suspicion, it does not mean you cannot believe it if there is no corroboration. Then there was his opinion of Norman Scott. He is a fraud. He is a sponger. He is a whiner. He is a parasite. But of course he could still be telling the truth. It is a question of belief. Don't think that when I have been giving you these recitals and failing to conceal my opinions of Scott, that I am suggesting you should not believe him. The trial concluded on June 22nd, 1979, when the jury brought in verdicts of not guilty on all charges against all four defendants. But in typical shameless fashion, Thorpe greeted well-wishers outside the Old Bailey as if he had won an election, and then, with his family, headed for a champagne celebration at his Hyde Park corner home, where they took to the balcony and waved at bemused onlookers below. But as the Telegraph accurately predicted, the 12 votes Mr Thorpe won from the jury may have been the last successful election of his life. And even some of the most conventional figures in the establishment were not satisfied with Thorpe's triumphalism. Ronald Herniman, Archdeacon of Barnstable, wrote, 
There is a great deal of unhappiness about the result at the Old Bailey. As far as most people are concerned, the trial ended with a big question mark over the case. In 1981, all the question marks were erased. David Holmes sold his story to the News of the World, donating his fee to charity, and said every single allegation was true. Duplicitous, arrogant and pompous till the end, Thorpe wrote in his memoirs that all three principal prosecution witnesses had been destroyed in cross-examination and the prosecution's case at its close was shot through with lies, inaccuracies and admissions to such an extent that the defence decided not to give evidence. Thorpe died in 2014. And that's when cover-ups numbers six and seven were revealed. In 2018, the BBC revealed that it had discovered why Thorpe's lawyers stopped him going into the witness box to defend himself. It was a four-page letter written by Thorpe in 1961 to an American man called Bruno, who he had met in San Francisco. The prosecution had a copy of the letter and had Thorpe opted to give evidence, he would have faced questions about the letter and his relationship with Bruno. It would have been far more damaging than the bunny's letter. He had written, I don't know how you feel, but although we only met briefly, I miss you desperately. If I'm ever driven out of public life in Britain for a gay scandal, then I shall settle in San Francisco. He signed off by saying, I can't tell you how happy I am to have met you. Yours most affectionately, Jeremy. The letter came into the hands of the FBI when Bruno was arrested by them in 1963 for breaking a probation order he had received for theft. It was brought to the attention of the then Attorney General Robert Kennedy, no less, who decided to privately inform an undisclosed person in the UK government about his existence on the basis that the British can't afford another disclosure of this kind. In 2014, quite by chance, reporter Tom Mangold met a man called Dennis Meehan in a park, who revealed to him that David Holmes had offered him £13,500 to shoot Scott. After some initial inquiries, Meehan backed off and offered the job to his friend, Andrew Newton. After Newton's arrest in 1975, Meehan went to the police who gave him a prepared statement to sign. It contained no references to Thorpe. And then, in 2018, Mangold's long-suppressed panorama documentary, The Jeremy Thorpe Scandal, made in 1979, was finally screened by the BBC. But only because Mangold had kept his copy of the film, despite being told by the BBC to destroy it. Mangold's view was one that I share, that the real scandal were the numerous cover-ups which went on from the Prime Minister down. Nearly all of the main players in this drama are dead now. However, as of April 2023, Norman Scott is alive and well and living his best life in Devon, enjoying late-life happiness with his four grandchildren and his long-time partner. 
so I guess we can regard that as some form of natural justice for him. But justice in the legal sense still awaits its day, because every single one of the Department of Public Prosecution documents pertaining to the Thorpe trial are closed until January the 1st, 2039 and a number of relevant Home Office documents are closed until 2041. So the cover-up continues, and the establishment still protects its own, be they dead or alive. That is a real British scandal. Stranger to the Truth is the first series in the collection Have You Heard? Stories from My Archive. It was produced, written, narrated, edited and composed by Rose Collis. <laughs>